This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Continue in our series of studies in Matthew's Gospel today. We're looking at chapter 9, verses 18 through 38. With this passage, we come to something of a transition. Uh, chapter 10, beginning with the appointment of the apostles. Uh, certainly, other miracles occur, uh, plenty still to come. Uh, yet, from this point on, there's more of a focus to Jesus' teaching, as well as uh, beginning to look forward we could put it that way, look forward to the cross. So this concludes a section that sees the beginning of the advance of the kingdom. And so let's look at chapter 9, verses 18 through 38. Hear the word of God. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks to you for your word. 
for the scriptures, which are able to make us wise for salvation and which show to us Jesus. And Father, we pray as we study your word this morning for the light that your Holy Spirit gives. We pray that you would nourish us by our study of your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've seen, Matthew 4, the end of the chapter, sets the stage for what is to come, particularly what we see in chapters 5 through 9. Uh, these chapters establish the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the initial advance of the kingdom of God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7, we find there uh, Jesus setting out for us the principles of the kingdom, the theological basis for the Christian life. Jesus was not overturning the Old Testament, but rather he was restoring the proper understanding of the Old Testament, especially the law, showing that it is not just an external conformity to the law that the Lord is concerned about, that the law in the Old Testament is concerned about, but the state of the heart before God. And if one's heart desires to obey the law, if one seeks to obey the Lord inwardly, then that, that behavior will begin to show on the outside as well. So not just an outward veneer of obedience and righteousness, but a heart for God that reveals itself through a righteous life. But then chapters 8 and 9 go on to show Jesus healing, primarily taken up with healing various people. And it shows that the kingdom of heaven is not just a matter of theology, as important as that is, but it is about power as well. The power of the kingdom advancing, pushing back Satan and his hold on people's lives, pushing back against his territory, retaking his turf as the kingdom advances. Now, that does not end with chapter 9, obviously. It doesn't even end with the book of Matthew, chapter 28. In fact, the book ends, as you know, perhaps with the Great Commission. And you and I today are part of what Jesus set in motion in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. And we'll look at that in just a little bit as we study this passage. But the text this morning seems to tie those two things together, kind of summarize and emphasize again that the kingdom of heaven advances through both truth and acts of mercy. So let's look at it then here. First of all, in this passage, we find the evidence of the kingdom's advance, tangible outward evidence that the Lord is on the move, that Satan is being pushed back and his turf retaken. And we see this through these four episodes of healing that we encounter in verses 18 through 34. Uh, Even uh, as Jesus is saying these things, what uh, we looked at last week, the preceding verses about the patch on the garment and the new wine being put into new wineskins, even as Jesus was talking about those things, we read, in verse 18 about a ruler who came in and knelt before Jesus. Now, the miracle actually occurs later, but this sets the stage for it. In, in both Matthew as, in Matthew as well as Mark and Luke, you find sort of this miracle within the miracle, the healing of the bleeding woman in the middle of the beginning and end of the account of the healing of the uh, ruler's daughter. Well, while Jesus is saying these things, a ruler comes in. Now, who's a ruler? Well, he's a synagogue ruler. Uh, He is, in effect, an elder. 
The uh, Jewish synagogues were pretty much governed the way a Presbyterian church is. They had elders who oversaw the synagogue and its order and its shepherding and so forth. And this ruler uh, is an elder, a leader of the synagogue. In fact, his name was Jairus. Uh, And uh, he comes to Jesus and he kneels before Jesus, uh, if not outright worship, at least an acknowledgement of uh, not only Jesus' superiority, but of his, his need uh, perhaps worship. Matthew often describes kneeling as a as an act of worship, and he comes with a very difficult problem. Uh, my daughter, he says, has just died. Now, if you read Mark's account and Luke's account, Mark five, Luke chapter eight, you'll find that they came and said his daughter is dying. His daughter is sick. He comes and says, "My daughter is dying," and then after he healed the woman with the hemorrhage. Uh, they come and say, your daughter has died. Well, Matthew just compresses those and gets to the point, which is that she has died. And given their state of medical science at the time, to actually draw the fine line between is dying and has died, I mean, they know when someone's died, but precisely that moment is, uh, is unclear here. Uh, and in fact, the point is, though, that she has died. And the man says, come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, he is demonstrating faith here. And in each of these, you want to look for the reference to faith, the indication of faith here, because that that plays a part. But he comes to Jesus, confident that Jesus can help, while at the same time, uh, he wants Jesus there. Remember the centurion, centurion, Jesus said, I'll come, and the centurion says, no, 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 don't come, just, just say the word. Just speak it, and it's done, because I know the kind of authority you have. You know, I myself have authority. Say to this one, go and do this, he does it. This one, go and do that, and he does that. Well, Jesus, just say it, and it's done. Well, the synagogue ruler wanted Jesus there. And he says, just come, just lay your hand on her. and Be physically present. Come and touch her, and she will live. And so Jesus did just that. Now, that brings in the, the, the miracle within the miracle here that occurs while Jesus is on the way. And this this occasion where he brings health to one who is sick. Behold, verse 20, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Mark includes the detail that uh, she had spent all of her money on doctors and had not gotten better, but gotten only worse. Luke, the physician who records this event, uh, indicates that she had, in fact, spent her money on doctors, but no one could cure this. Uh, it doesn't note that she only got worse. He just says this this disease is is difficult. There's nothing modern, their modern modern medicine in their day could could do for her. Uh, but Matthew leaves those details out. Simply just says she had suffered this discharge of blood for twelve. Years Now, that indicates that this was not something necessarily life-threatening, but it was something chronic, it was something persistent, and more importantly, it was something that rendered her ceremonially unclean all the time and not able to participate in the religious life of Israel as she otherwise could. And so she comes to Jesus... And she touches the fringe of his garment. Now, obviously, this woman's heard of him. And by this point, who hasn't? 
Uh, people have uh, come to at least hear of him if they haven't seen him or heard him themselves. And she, she gets the idea in her mind, well, who am I that he'd pay attention to me? But if I can just get near him, if I can just, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be made better. Now, there's a strong element of superstition there, you know, if I just touch his clothes. And it says, in fact, that she came up behind him there in the crowd and touched the fringe of his garment, or perhaps the tassels. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy uh, numbers both uh, indicate the requirement that uh, a cloak on its four corners was to have a, a tassel. The point was not so much just to, to, to dress it up. The point was that was a reminder of God's law. That was a reminder of their obligation to obedience to the word of the Lord. And she comes up and she touches perhaps the tassels, the fringe, maybe just the edge of his garment. And she's thinking, if I just touch it, I will be made well. Verse 22, Jesus turned. Seeing her, he says to her, take heart, daughter. You know, there's, cheer up. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Well, in this encounter with Jesus. Now, notice what Jesus says to her. She was made well. He made her well. But it was not her superstitious ideas about Jesus that made her well. Jesus says to her very specifically, your faith has made you well. It was, in fact, that she trusted that Jesus could help, not some superstitious idea about just touching his clothing uh, that would make her better. And so instantly, it says, she was made well. Uh, just like that, this condition that had persisted for 12 years was made better. You see, it's nothing for Jesus to make her better. Even something that no human could do. Even something that had persisted for so long. And so we have health to the sick. Now we've seen that. Well, here is another instance of it. But then, life to the dead. Now look at verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house, again, back to the initial story, to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. Now he comes to the house and there's all this activity going on, uh, almost chaotic in its, in its energy and in its noise. Now, when we go to the funeral home, go for a visitation or perhaps go to the home, uh, it's interesting, our response among those who are grieving, whether it's cultural or, or temperamental, uh, our tendency is to be quiet. You know, we tend to speak in low tones. and um, Even to the deceased, I'm very, very sorry about your loss, you know. And we kind of whisper to each other. Doesn't he look good? All that kind of stuff. that We, we don't want to speak up. We, it tends to be kind of a quiet hush. Well, not so at a Jewish... Uh, funeral or when someone died. Uh, in fact, it was considered quite appropriate to make loud lamentation. And as if it weren't enough for the guests to come and to weep and to wail over the loss that has taken place, it was required even for the poorest families to hire two flute players and one professional mourner, a woman who was particularly skilled at wailing and lamenting, to come to the, to, the, to the wake, come to the funeral, and make great lamentation over the departure of the deceased. Now, the poor were required to have two flute players and one professional woman to wail. 
uh, the uh, people with, 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 with larger means might have any number of flute players and many professional mourners present to make lamentation over the deceased. And that's what's going on here. And when Jesus comes to the house, you've got the flute players, you've got the crowd and the professional mourners carrying on. And Jesus says to them, go away. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And they said, oh, you're right, Jesus. No, they didn't. They laughed at him. They thought, this guy, this, yeah, that's a joke. This guy doesn't even know a dead person when he sees one. Uh, what does he mean, sleeping? Well, later in the New Testament, as you go along, sleep is often used as a euphemism, a nice way of speaking about death. Um, remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, Paul writes to them, I do not want you to... Be alarmed about those who are asleep, those who have died. In other words, their concern was, what about those who died? What relationship do they have to Jesus? And Paul goes on to explain that. Of course, all of that was meaningless here. That was after this. But the point is well taken, that for Jesus, even death itself is no more final, no more binding than a person being asleep. For the Lord himself, the giver of life, the presence of a corpse does not present a challenge. And in fact, this is, you could say, probably the greatest miracle that Jesus has done to this point, not just making a living but sick person better, but actually restoring life to someone who has died. Now, that occurs two other times. It occurs with the, uh, the, with the widow in the village of Nain, whose son had died, and Jesus raises him back to life. And it occurs, of course, with Lazarus, who had been in the tomb three days, and Jesus brings him forth out of the grave alive. Well, here we have this same situation. They laugh at him, but when the crowd had been put outside, that's almost a mild way to put it. It's almost like that when the crowd was thrown out or even cast out, forcefully ejected, we might say, uh, Jesus went in, he took her by the hand, and the girl, she was um, one of the other Gospels, I believe uh, Mark tells us she was 12. Uh, the girl arose, and the report of this went through all that district. Now, Jesus sent the crowd out, perhaps to restore some order and decorum, but as we shall see uh, in just a minute, Jesus was also concerned about not inflaming messianic expectations because the idea that the people had about the Messiah wasn't accurate. It was not what Jesus himself had come to do. They wanted a Messiah who would govern them, who would immediately claim power and and revolt against Rome. And of course, that was not what Jesus' purpose was about. It was much bigger than that. So Jesus tended to be careful not to expose people to too many of these miracles lest they get the wrong idea. And in fact, one of the other Gospels uh, says that Jesus told them to be quiet. But it didn't happen in verse 26. The report of this, restoring someone from death to life, uh, naturally, we might say, went out through all that district. So health to the sick, death, or life rather, to the dead, uh, sight to the blind. In our next passage here, 27 through 30, as Jesus went from there, two blind men follow. And they cry out to him, have mercy on us, son of David, uh, a messianic title, as they cry out to Jesus for help. And Jesus went into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus asked if they believed, did they have faith, that he could do it. And they said, yes, Lord. 
on two counts. Yes, we believe, and they describe, they ascribe lordship to him. It's been said probably the greatest oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? Two words that kind of contradict each other, like jumbo shrimp, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the, the greatest oxymoron that you could ever pronounce is no, Lord, declining on the one hand while acknowledging Jesus as Lord on the other. Well, they said, yes, Lord, we do believe that you can do this. And so he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Now, he's not speaking here of proportion. As you have believed, you know, in so much as you have believed, so much shall you have sight. He's just saying, since you have believed, you have sight. And again, it's not their faith, but it's the power of Jesus that heals them. But the faith was the open door that Jesus, you know, they trusted in him and he came and he healed them. And their eyes were open. Again, Jesus warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Now, they were disobedient, but we can certainly understand their joy in being able to see and going out and making this known that Jesus had done it in their joy. And then the last instance here of evidence of the kingdom's advance is speech to the mute. Verses 32 and 34 through 34. They, they were going away as these men left. Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Now, demon possession, or here oppression, has various manifestations, as we've already seen. But here, its indication was that this man could not talk. And again, we want to be careful, because the Bible does ascribe even physical maladies to demon possession, but others it does not, and it does make a distinction between the two. But when the demon had been cast out, again, by Jesus, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled. Now, you get two responses here that are important before we move on. The crowds were amazed. They said, we've never seen anything like this. And we can well imagine as they watch this. But the Pharisees, they didn't deny that Jesus did these things. How could they? But what they did do was try to undermine them. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. They're desperate. They'll do what they can, uh, best they can come up with. Well, he, he, he fights against Satan by the power of Satan. Now, it takes about two seconds thought to realize that doesn't make any sense. But they had to do something. And again, this, this hint of opposition arising to Jesus sets the stage for what is to come. But the best they can do is say he, he opposes Satan by the power of Satan. He, he's, he himself is working under the power of the devil. That's what gives him this power to do what he is doing. Pretty lame, but again, the best they could do. But it is a sinister tone that indicates their opposition. Evidence of the kingdom. People's lives being changed. The mercy of God being shown to them. In a, in a powerful, even miraculous way. That's evidence of the kingdom's advance. And we have that today. Uh, we prayed earlier for the Warrens and for the Whites. And while they combat uh, the, the disease of AIDS, the infection of HIV uh, with medicine, it is uh, a very powerful testimony to the mercy of God. They don't have the miraculous power of Christ to speak a word or touch someone and make them well, but they do have the power to bring modern medicine to bear and certainly the power of God through prayer in bringing health to those to whom they minister. But in countless ways around this world, even today, ways both known and unknown, the evidence of the kingdom's advance is being demonstrated by the mercy, by the compassion, the grace that God's people are showing in the name of Christ to alleviate human misery, human suffering. And that's a powerful, powerful testimony 
and a powerful instrument in the advance of the kingdom. So the evidence of it is the outward, visible, manifest alleviation of human suffering. Foundation for the kingdom's advance, and my next three points will be much briefer than the first, so don't, you know, be panicking at this point. Foundation for the kingdom's advance, verse 35. We touched on this, but Matthew hits it again to emphasize. The foundation for the kingdom's advance is basically threefold. Teaching, preaching, healing. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. The synagogues were, were set up for teaching. It was, they would read, and very similar to what we do here, there was a reading of Scripture, there would be an explanation of it, an exposition of it, uh, very much oriented toward teaching the Word of God to the Israelites, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, or preaching. I've often pondered the distinction between preaching and teaching. I'm not sure that there's so much a hard line as you may move from one to the other, but I think true preaching above teaching has this element of proclamation, a declaration of the kingdom, uh, a call to uh, obedience to the king, that the kingdom of God has come and we are to submit to it. And certainly the term here has that idea of, of not just teaching, but proclamation, a herald making known what has come. And third, healing every disease and every affliction. Not, not absolutely everyone who was sick, but all kinds is the intent here. All kinds of diseases, all kinds of afflictions from which one could suffer. And what we've read here is just a taste, just a sampling, just evidence of different ones, but much more that we don't read about. Well, today, that's still the foundation of the kingdom's advance. There's the proclamation of the kingdom, the call to repent and believe the gospel. There is the aspect of teaching or discipleship that we might say that uh, takes those who have uh, submitted to the king and teaching them the word of God, teaching them the truths of Scripture. And then the other side of it is healing, or we might put it in modern terms, mercy ministry, both to one another as fellow believers in Christ and certainly to those outside the church who are still caught up and bound by the misery of sin. So the foundation of the kingdom is, again, those three things, teaching and preaching and healing, or we could say truth, teaching and preaching, and mercy ministry. Now, the motivation for the kingdom's advance, why? What's the purpose? Well, look at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we read that and and we just skip right over that. But let me show you a contrast to show why that's different, why that's distinctive. Look back in chapter 9, verse 11. Verse 10, uh, Jesus is at the table. Many tax collectors and sinners came, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's how the Pharisees saw the people. Subpar. Untouchables. The avoidable. Stay away from them. Certainly don't sit down and eat with them at a table. What's Jesus' reaction to the crowds? Verse 34, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He, he felt for them. He was drawn to them. No wonder they were drawn to him. He felt compassion. Beautiful word. It's an ugly word in Greek. Splachna. 
The beautiful word in English of compassion, of that, that welling up from one's deepest, deepest part of one's being, that feeling of a desire to assist, a desire to help, a desire to connect with people around. Why did he see them that way? Because Jesus saw their true condition. Yes, they were sinners, but he saw beyond that. They were harassed and they were helpless. They were, as he would say in John 8, slaves to their sin. They were under the control of their sin. They were under the control of Satan. They were harassed by him. They were helpless under his power. And they were like, he said, sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are in trouble. They can't take care of themselves. They're in a dangerous situation, desperate situation. They will not last long either because they will wander into difficulty themselves or they are left a prey for wolves. They need to be led. They need to be protected. They need to be provided for. And when Jesus saw all these people, he felt for them. Why? Because he saw their condition, helpless, harassed by sin and its power, and the power of Satan, and like sheep without a shepherd. There was no one protecting them. There was no one leading them. There was no one to help them. And that goes for not only someone on the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder, that goes for the CEO of Fortune 500 companies today. They are harassed and helpless in their sin, and they are like sheep without a shepherd, spiritually speaking. And the question is, do we see people that way? You know, do you look at people as a Pharisee would? You know, yuck, got to get away from that person as quickly as possible. What a, what a wretched life he lives. What a sorry state she's in. Or do you see people with the eyes of Jesus? Do you see them as being spiritually enslaved in bondage without help in themselves and therefore feel compassion for them, recognizing that that's exactly where you were and where you would be apart from Christ showing compassion to you? So it's a way of seeing. It's a way of feeling. He feels compassion, but it's because of the way he sees them, which is as sheep without a shepherd. And then that leads us to the fourth thing. Here, the evidence of the kingdom's advance, foundation for it, motivation for it, being his compassion and a view of people, a heart for people and a way of seeing them. But then the last thing is participation in the kingdom's advance in verses 37, 38. Jesus, as a result of this, says to his disciples, harvest is plentiful. And it is. Or to put it another way, there's absolutely no shortage of sinful people out there who need Jesus. Think about that. Next time you're stuck on I-85, surrounded by hundreds of cars going nowhere fast, these are people who need Jesus. These are people who are part of that plentiful harvest. And we can thank God that we live in an area where there are so many people who are in need of Christ, as well as many people, of course, who do know him. The problem, he says, is the laborers are few. Now, to this point, it's been all Jesus. It's been Jesus' ministry, and we've seen that. That's about to change. Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at uh, the first part of Matthew chapter 10. The laborers are few. Therefore, this is almost like one of Paul's letters, this and this, therefore this. Jesus says there's a lot of people out there. It's, It's pretty much limitless, the need. The laborers, however, are few. Therefore, be a laborer. Go. Is that what he said? No. Definitely not. Therefore, Pray. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, the only laborers that should be out working in the harvest are those whom God has sent. And so it may be God sends you 
But the first thing Jesus says, and he does later say go, but the first thing that he says is pray. Ask God to raise up and send out those workers into the harvest whom he would have to go. Now, in one sense, every one of us as a believer is a worker to be in the harvest, wherever it is that God has placed us. And it may be you need to pray. Lord, show me how you could use me as a harvester where I am among those whom you have placed me. But Jesus specifically tells us to pray that God would raise up those, and we would say in our, perhaps in our case, full-time Christian workers, vocational Christian workers, to go out into the harvest. And it's not, I think, uh, accidental that this is immediately followed in chapter 10 by the appointment of the 12 apostles, partially a fulfillment to the prayer Jesus asks for, and yet 12 certainly was not enough to accomplish the task. Well, as we look at this, we do see, and as Matthew wraps up this, this, session, this uh, section of his gospel, the advance of the kingdom. The fact is that Jesus looks out on sinful people. He looks at sinful people like you and me, and he doesn't condemn. He doesn't run us down. He doesn't look down his nose in arrogance, but he feels compassion. Later he would say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden with your sin, and I will give you rest. But he in turn invites us to pray, to be part of the process of reaching all of those who are in need of Christ. So that we look out and say, Lord, thank you, I'm not like this man, a sinner. But we look out and say, Lord, could you reach this man, this woman, the sinner, and bring them into your kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask for forgiveness for those times when we have had eyes like the Pharisees and looked at others and congratulated ourselves and our self-righteousness rather than looking at others with the eyes of Jesus and seeing their true condition and feeling compassion that these are people who desperately need Jesus, whether they know it or acknowledge it or not. We thank you, O God, that your kingdom, even today, advances by the declaration of truth and by acts of mercy and compassion. And we pray, Father, that you would use us and use this church to be a part of that. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.